But good morning, church. Good to see you. Good to be together. You ready for the heat wave? It's coming today, this week. Oh, it's coming. (laughs) Are you um, stumped for Valentine's this year and what to do, a gift? I know, I know it's still nine days away, but consider yourself forewarned. But if you really want to go out all out this year, instead of trying to find the right gift or the perfect card, perhaps you could give your partner a world record. All right, let me give you a couple of these. See if you can beat this, perhaps. Did you know the largest box of chocolates weighed 3,725 pounds? The box was 16 feet, 6 inches long, 11 feet, 2 inches wide, and 3 feet, 3 inch, half inches deep. Or maybe you could try Chocolate Kisses display. The, the, the largest one of Chocolate Kisses display consisted of 41,692 kisses spread tightly across a 63-foot-long, 11-foot-high mural. The centerpiece was a guitar shape that stood um, 18 feet high. All right, speaking of kisses, the longest kiss lasted 58 hours, 35 minutes, and 58 seconds. It was achieved by a couple from Thailand at at an event organized by Ripley's, believe it or not, on February 12th through the 14th, 2013. Nine couples entered the annual competition, including a married couple in their 70s. Yes, go for it. However, the previous record holders came on top for a second time scooping a cash prize and two diamond rings as well as another Guinness World Records title. Perhaps, perhaps you can take a shot at writing a love letter. According to Ripley's Believe It or Not, the longest love letter ever written was by Marcel de Leclerc in 1875. Marcel was an, an artist in Paris, France, and his letter contained a three-word French phrase that I won't try to, to, to pronounce, but it was translated, it meant, I love you. This wasn't just written down once, it was written 1,875,000 times. And he didn't even write the letter himself, he hired a scribe. He dictated that message, word for word, all three of them, and then had the scribe read it back to him. Remember, this was the same phrase written 1,875,000 times. Reflecting on this love letter, Robert Ripley, creator of Ripley's Believe It or Not, said, never was love made manifest by as great an expenditure of time and effort. Really? Come on. How loving is it to write the same thing, three letters, a million times? I guess, apparently, you can Google this yourself, but I guess Donnie Hathaway put that love letter to a song. All right, maybe you can take your shot, uh, a shot at writing a love song. Because that's what we have today. We have a love song in the book of Isaiah. And, and, and so if you're not there, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. We're looking at Isaiah through the lens of why are we here? Why are we, as followers of Jesus Christ in this world, what are we to be all about? And so in Isaiah chapter 5, we come to this love song. Now, as I said a few weeks ago in week one of our study, 
I wouldn't be looking at every single chapter and every single verse of Isaiah, but handpicked several sections that will give us a good flavor of this book and its message for us at Living Hope in 2023. And so as we come to chapter 5 this morning, Isaiah goes from preacher to folk singer. And you know things have really gotten really bad when the preacher picks up a guitar and sings. You can relax. I won't get any ideas. But as the people gather, Isaiah grabs their attention by singing to them a love song. Everyone loves a love song. Whether it's the profound deep, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which sounds like me just writing, I love you a million times. Or, or baby love, or you've lost that loving feeling, or I want to know what love is, or I will always love you by Whitney Houston, or I think I love you by Partridge Family. I just couldn't help myself on that one. But love songs resonate with us. According to Billboard, the, the number one love song of all time is Endless Love. Fun fact, fun fact. That song, Endless Love, was sung at our wedding not by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie, of course, but, but as that song was sung with the words, as Dawn and I stood there, my love, there's only you in my life, the only thing that's right, and you will always be my endless love. Oh, good, no, good job. Much better than first service, much better. You guys are the shopper group. We already knew that. That was 40 years ago. And Isaiah now, under the superintending of God, takes a crack at writing a love song. And it ends on a sour note, kind of like a lot of our country songs. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. But Isaiah is said to this song here is to be a beautiful song. Some say it's the most beautiful song ever written for those who really can appreciate the Hebrew language. We lose something in the translation. All right, look at Isaiah chapter 5. I hope you're in the Bibles with me. And, and the message here in the song, because what we have here is a parable in song. All right, first saying this morning is the care of the field. The care of the field. Isaiah chapter 5, look with me at verse 1. He says, I will sing, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. And so Isaiah here is using language of affection. He says, I will sing for the one I love. He speaks of God as my loved one, my beloved. See, Isaiah saw not only a holy God who is high and lifted up, but one who is to be loved and adored. And Isaiah is enamored with God. So he sings. What does he sing? He sings about a vineyard. Now, by the way, um, Isaiah often compares uh, Israel to a vineyard in this book. He, he speaks of them as a vineyard close to 10 times throughout Isaiah. Three times in these seven verses, God says, uh, my vineyard. Notice who the vineyard belongs to. It is God's vineyard. He owns it. Hang on to that. We continue to verse 1. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. What is Isaiah saying here? 
Well, he's describing the activities of the farmer and owner preparing his vineyard. The farmer, the owner, would choose an exposed hillside that gave evidence of high fertility. He then would turn up the soil, and, and in that land, there was a lot of stones, and so he'd remove all the stones, and he'd lift out of the way the big boulders. And then, then when those stones were dug up, the farmer would, would use those stones to build a wall to keep out wild animals, and then the farmer inside of those walls would plant the vines. He then... He then would wait in anticipation for the grapes to be produced, which could take up to two years. In that time, while the farmer, the owner, waited for the crop, he'd get everything ready for the pressing of the grapes and the gathering of the juice. He'd build a, he'd build a watchtower and cut two barrel-like vats out, of, uh, out on the hillside, one above the other, which were connected by a, a shallow trough. The upper barrel would be used for pressing the grapes, and the lower, lower barrel would be the basin for the juice, which would run down through the trough uh, from the press. Now, that might be more information than you really want to know, but Isaiah's point here is, is, is what he's emphasizing is that it is quite an ordeal. And that, and that this owner, this farmer, had done all the hard work and the expectation of receiving a crop of good grapes to make his own wine for himself and to sell to others. And as everyone listened to, to Isaiah in this love song, they would emp empathize with the, with, with the back-breaking work of the, of the farmer, the owner. And so what came next in this song would very much resonate with all those who were listening to the preacher, now singer, Isaiah, the owner of the vineyard, did all that he could, and now he waits in expectation of receiving a crop of good grapes. End of verse 2, then he looked for, waited expectantly, he looked for a crop of good grapes. He, he's waiting, expecting there's going to be good fruit. And now we come to a sour note in the song. The twist in the song comes next. He says, but, looking for this, but it yielded only bad fruits. The owner of the vineyard, having to do all that he could to care and to protect provide for the vineyard, to see this result was devastating. All his hard work had been in vain. All that he did, no purpose. What a waste. You, you know that feeling? You know that feeling? That, that you put your heart into something, do you only wonder, what's the use? You, you sacrifice and, and you give of your time and, and you pour yourself into something or you pour yourself into someone and you see no fruit for your efforts. It's heartbreaking. It can be absolutely crushing. In this situation of the hardworking farmer, even worse than not seeing any fruit at all was that it yielded bad fruit. And even worse still, was that the thought behind this bad fruit is not just that it's bad fruit, it was stinky, 
rotten, rancid-smelling fruit. What's the explanation for this vineyard producing bad fruit? All right, what's the cause of the failure? My second heading this morning, the cause of the failure. The song ends in verse 2, and it ends on a sour note. Now remember, this isn't just some sentimental love song. This is a parable in song. This was a, a clever and creative way to get a clear message to all the people standing there listening. And what we see here is really reminiscent of Scripture's account of Nathan confronting David in his sin. Remember? Remember how Nathan hooked David in after David's sin of taking another man's wife and making sure someone on the front lines there, the husband got, got, got killed and murdered? Remember how he hooked him in? He hooked him in with what? A story. He appealed to David's sense of justice, who could clearly see another man's wrong, but not his own. And so Nathan hooks David in, and then the twist in, that, that, in all of that is, is that it's a story about David when Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. That's what's happening here. The situation's set up as a hypothetical to get the hearers to feel with the farmer. And the people are drawn into the scenario, and then Isaiah draws in the net. He, he calls them to make a judgment. In verse 3, before Isaiah spoke for God in the first two verses, now he speaks as God, the farmer, the owner of the vineyard. And he says, speaking as God here, he says, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. And then he asks the question, verse 4, What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? And in that time, when all the people were listening, it was a very interactive uh, message there, and people would respond often when the speaker was speaking. And so right here at the end of verse 4, when he asked them, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? All those listeners would have answered, nothing, 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 absolutely nothing. And Isaiah has the hearers right where he wants them. He calls on them to decide. And he asks, when I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? In other words, the bad fruit. Whose fault? Who's to blame? Is it the owner of the vineyard? I mean, was the vineyard neglected? Did the farmer slack off? Did he not do his part? Could he have done more? No, the picture here is that of a farmer, an owner who gave it his all. He went all out. He worked diligently. He cared for the field. It's now ready for harvest. The purpose of the vineyard is fruitfulness. Now, what's the explanation then for it producing bad fruit? Is the farmer to blame? Or is it the vineyard? And what began as a beautiful love song turns ugly. And the audience is beginning <laughs> to figure it out that this singing business was more than entertainment. Isaiah is trying to make a point. What's his point? 
that God, the owner of the vineyard, has done all he could to prepare his people for fruit bearing. He lavished his care of them. God himself brought the nation into the land of Canaan, a fertile hillside, a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning it would be prosperous. It was prime land. It was luscious land. He cleared the land of rocks, the Canaanites. He met their needs. He fought for them. He protected them. He was good to them. So good to them. See, the problem was not in the care of the field. The problem was not with God. What more could he have done? That is, without violating human will and freedom. God does not force them or us into fruit bearing. He was good to them in preparing them for fruitfulness. Can God be blamed? Donald Drusky was a man who took God to court. The one-time employee of USX Corporation blamed God for failing to rectify the wrong done to him when he was fired in 1968. Drusky then waged a 30-year battle with a steelmaker before deciding to take legal action against God. And the suit reads... The defendant, God, is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and he took no corrective action against the leaders of his church and his nation for their extremely serious wrongs, which ruined the life of Donald S. Drusky. Now, for damages, Drusky asked for the return of his youth, the skill of a great guitarist, the resurrection of his mother, and resurrection of his pet pigeon. Drusky hoped that God would fail to appear in court, allowing him to win the case by default. Drusky's case was declared frivolous and thrown out by a Syracuse court. Good for them. Now, we may smile at that and maybe shake our head in disgust over the ridiculousness of such a lawsuit. But God gets blamed for a lot of things. He gets blamed all the time. We do something foolish and we blame God, then our life gets messy. We feel the heat of some of our decisions and then blame God. He didn't do something about it. Come on, God, do something. James Emery White says, if all else fails in passing blame, there's always God. Author Philip Yancey, a while back now, he writes of being contacted by a television producer after the death of Princess Diana to appear on a show and explain how God could have possibly allowed such a tragic accident. So Yancey asked the producer, he said, could it have had something to do with a drunk driver going 90 miles an hour in a narrow tunnel? I mean, how exactly was God involved? From this, Yancey then reflected on the pervasive nature of the mindset that our actions are actually an indictment of God, such as when boxer Ray Boom Boom Mancini killed a Korean opponent with a hard right hand to the head. And at the press conference after the Korean's death, Mancini said, sometimes I wonder why God does the things he does. Now you punch the guy. In a letter to a Christian family therapist, A young woman told of dating a man and becoming pregnant, and she wanted to know why God allowed that to happen to her. Yancey raises a decisive question by asking, what exactly was the role God played in a boxer pummeling his opponent, a teenager abandoning her virtue? Is God responsible for these acts? To the contrary, 
he says. They are examples of incredible human free will being exercised on a fallen planet. And yet, he says, it's in our fallen nature, our fallen nature, to lash out the one who is not fallen, that being God. The issue is bad fruit. Whose fault? Is God to be blamed? Was there failure to bear good fruit because of maybe their upbringing? Was it, was it because of, uh, of their, the fault of just some bad luck? Or, or maybe because they were being mistreated by others? Was it because life was just unfair to them? What might be their excuse? What might be your excuse? What excuse are you using right now to get out of something you know you ought to do? In the sports world, and likely I've used this illustration before, it's what's called loser's limp. Loser's limp is when a baseball player misjudges a fly ball and misses the catch, or when a wide receiver in football drops the ball. They fall to the ground, and what do they get up limping? Loser's limp. The impression they're trying to give you is, is the reason we didn't make that catch is because of some injury rather than some fault of my own. I would have caught it if it wasn't this leg here. And Tony Evans likens that to what many people suffer from today, a loser's limp. He says, we've come up with all kinds of excuses why we can't lead the home, why we can't serve in a ministry, why we can't speak to someone about Christ, why we can't get more involved, why we can't come to Christ. I mean, what's keeping you from moving toward Jesus? What is, what is your limp that you keep using as an excuse? If it wasn't here, I'd be doing a lot more. What is it? What's your if only? If only I had more time. If only I was married or I was married to a different spouse. Only if my job wasn't so demanding. If only the church had what I needed. What's your if only? What's mine? Excuses, excuses, excuses. There really is no excuse for bad fruit. It was their own doing. It was because of their stubbornness and their sinfulness. And then in verses 8 to the end of the chapter, and you can read it for yourself. I'm just going to bullet some, some points here, and that's it. But it lays out the cause of the bad fruit. We'll come back to verses 5 and 7 in a moment. But 8 to the end of the chapter, it's, it's said as woes, laments. There are six things God holds against them. I'm going to give it to you quickly. Sin of covetousness, verse 8. You can check it out yourself. Sin of covetousness, verse 8. Sin of drunkenness, verse 11. Verse 18, he calls them out on their sin of presumption. Bad fruit was seen and that they were deliberately opposing God's moral law, verse 20. There's the sin of pride. In verse 21, he calls them out on that we spent some time on last week. We'll come back to it again when we go through Isaiah. And then verse 22 speaks of the sin of injustice. Six things. He's saying, you have no right to shake your fists at me and blame me. They're the cause of the failure to produce a, good, uh, produce a crop of good fruit. God did his part. What God was looking for in his people did not come about. Instead of bearing fruit, they yielded bad fruit that stunk to the heavens. All right, here's some of the consequences they faced. Here's some consequences they faced. Now, as we come to verse 5, God lays out what all this means for the people of Judah. And I want to read really the end of verse 4 
before I get to verse 5 in order to get the full effect of these words. Because as we move from the end of verse 4 to verse 5, I can imagine that Isaiah, after Isaiah spoke the words in verse 4, there was this, there was this pause. Some call it a pregnant pause for effect. It's a pause. All right? End of verse 4. But it yielded only bad fruit. Pause. Verse 5, said with intensity. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. We saw in the song he sang that it highlighted all that God had done for them, that God provided for them, that God cared for them, that God protected them, that he put this hedge around them. But now they'll face the music of their actions. They'll have to accept the consequences because God was about to remove his hand of protection and leave them exposed. And so often we step outside of God's umbrella of protection and we go, why God? Why? We step outside of that umbrella of God's protection and and then we feel the, the painful consequences of that choice. But you see, we can't live any way we want and escape the consequences of that. That's presumptuous. And yet we go often, God, can you step in? God, bail me out. Where are you, God? Blame God. It's his fault. So verse 6 says, I'll make it a wasteland, neither prune nor cultivate, and briars and thorns will grow there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. The purpose of the vineyard is to bear fruits. If it's not doing that, God would no longer attend to it. Scary place to be. In a case of some doubt as to whom Isaiah is writing and to what people and nation this is about, look what he says in verse 7. Just in case they missed it, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, the garden of his delight. Now, that that just amazes me, that last phrase there, that, that God still speaks in affectionate terms, even in their rebellion. He calls them the garden of his delight. Wow, what a gracious God. And Isaiah wraps up his thoughts by saying, end of verse 7, he looked for justice but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. And those last two lines there parallel what God was looking for uh, back in verse 2 and what he saw instead, that the fruit of God's labor was not justice and righteousness he had worked for, but instead oppression and violence and justice. The God who called them to be the light to all the nations was working And he was busy on their behalf. And yet the outcome of God's outpouring of his grace and goodness to them had nothing to show for it. Was that God's fault? Was God to blame? So I ask, how am I? How are you responding to the outpouring of God's grace in your life? How do these words here impact us? What's the so what of Isaiah chapter 5? All right, I want to leave you the two points of application, just in case we missed it along the way. Two points of application for us. First of all, if we don't take advantage of the opportunity God has given us, we might lose it. 
the point of application, number one. If we, as a church, we, as a families, we, as individuals, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, don't take advantage of the opportunity God has given us, we just might lose it. The people here enjoyed vineyard privileges, but with that came vineyard responsibilities. It's no different for us. God has blessed us. He did the greatest work ever in sending of his son to take our place on the cross. It is his finished work on the cross that has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And Romans 8.32 says, If God gave up his own son for us, how much more will he graciously give us all things? Church, let's not grow accustomed to God's blessings. There was this pretzel stand, this pretzel stand out in front of an office building in New York City. The cost of the pretzel was $3. One day, a man came out of the building, he plunked down $3, and then he went on his way without even taking a pretzel. The next day, again, he walked out of his building, he plunked down $3, and then he left without taking a pretzel. He did this every day for three weeks, gave the woman at the counter $3, but did not take a pretzel. And after doing this for three weeks, the lady running the stand spoke up and said, Sir, excuse me, may I have a word with you? The man said, I, I, I know what you're going to say. You're, you're going to ask me why I give you $3 every day and don't take a pretzel. The woman replied, No, 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 not at all. I just wanted to tell you that the price went up to $3.50. <laughs> right? I mean, there's a woman... There's a woman who grew accustomed to her blessings. Have we? Do we, do we begin to have this sense of entitlement? That, that, that God owes us some, for some reason? God, you owe this to me. You've got to give this to me. Who says? If that's our mindset, we miss out on appreciating the blessings. And with those blessings... And privileges come with responsibilities. The New Testament principle is given much, much will be required. And if we don't do anything with what we've been given, we might lose it. Second point of application is the normal response. The normal response to God's grace is fruitfulness. That's the normal response to God's grace is fruitfulness. God wants fruit. Why are we here? Fruitfulness. Bear fruit. The very first sermon I ever gave here was from John 15 and the importance of fruit bearing. You can read John 15 sometime this week. But, but in that message, what was true then back in 2015 is just as true now. Being a fruitful believer is not optional. Matter of fact, unfruitful, belie un unfruitful believers an oxymoron. What does that look like? What does fruit look like for us? Well, I'm not going to flesh this all out. You can do some of your work for yourself. But for starters, it's the nine flavored fruits spoken of in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Is that what's coming out of my life? Is that what others are seeing or we might want to think of fruit as, as Christ's character being reflected in your life as you go out through these doors today. 
Think of fruit as the outcomes of of a life lived with him, of our daily communion with the Lord, and what spills out of that, that's fruit. That's what God's after, a living hope. God's aim isn't comfortable, convenient, hot tub Christianity. Where do we ever get that idea? We don't exist for ourselves. God's aim is fruitfulness. That's why we're here. God wants fruit. Fruitful people glorify Him. God enjoys seeing His character reflected through His people. So, if there's a lack of fruit in our lives, guess what? It isn't the gardener's fault. Fruitfulness is not, fruitlessness is not God's fault. We can never say, God's not watering me. We can never say, you know, if my situation was different, I would then be bearing fruits. You know, if I, if, 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 if I was married or, or I didn't have kids or I did, had a different set of kids, <laughs> you never had that thought. Or if I was older or, or if I had more training, whatever you might use for as an excuse. Because when we say things like that, ah, if only, you know, yeah, no, I can't. We're in essence saying that God's management of the details of my life is less than adequate for my bearing fruit. That's what we're saying. No, God is a master gardener. He knows where we need to be clipped. He knows where we need to be pruned. He knows where we need to be cleaned. John 15. And God as the gardener knows how to maximize our potential for fruit bearing. God as the gardener knows how to maximize our potential for fruit bearing. And by the way, God's not looking for the spectacular, the most competent, the most talented. No, simply looking for those who are yielded to him. You say, here's my life, Lord. Stories told. Stories told. It was advertised in this large city that a great violinist would play on a million-dollar Stradivarius, the best violin in the world in many's opinion. And so the theater was packed. Many were curious and wanted to hear such an expensive instrument being played. And so the master violinist went on stage. He took that violin and he began to play. And it was remarkably beautiful, like nothing ever heard before. Suddenly, that violinist took that violin. He threw it on the floor. He began to stomp on it, crushing it to pieces. And then he, and then he walked off the stage. And the audience just sat stunned. They, they were in shock. Then the manager came out to center stage and he said, the violinist, the violinist did not really play the million-dollar Stradivarius, but rather it was a used instrument bought earlier in the day at a pawn shop for 50 bucks. He announced that the violinist would now play on the million-dollar Stradivarius, and out he came, and so he did. And most people... Most people in that audience had to admit they could not tell the difference between the first violin and the Stradivarius. His point? He wanted to show everyone that it was the violinist that makes the music, not the violin. In the master's hands, even a $50 fiddle can make beautiful music might see yourself as a $50 fiddle or less. And God wants to use you. 
to be the music of the gospel this week. He's done his part. How we respond to the outpouring of his grace on our lives. Are you, how are you bearing the sweet fruit consistent with the abundant grace God has invested in you and in me? Church, no more excuses. No more blaming. Place yourself in God's sovereign hands and see what he can do with it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for even all the stuff that's gone on in our life that we wish weren't there. You even take all of that and can bring something beautiful out of it. We thank you, God, that you're working. You're working in our lives. You're working in our waiting. You're working when we're wondering what, what, if anything's going on. You're working. You're doing your part. And so, God, I pray that we remain in Jesus Christ and allow you to produce fruit through us this week, whatever that looks like, for your glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.